Acts 12 verses 1 to 25. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak round you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being, what that was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realised this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognising Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept on saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them that his ha with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had, ha had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took up his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. Alistair, thanks so much for reading for us. Um, just to say that there will be a chance for Q&A or a chance to share any reflections 
from the series and act so far. So there'll be time for you to type in your thoughts or your questions in the chat after this talk. Uh, let me kick us off by sharing you a story from about a friend of mine that I used to grow up with as a childhood friend. Uh, let's call him Brian, Brian Lim. And Brian had a really tough childhood when he was growing up. And the reason why it was tough wasn't because he was poor. I mean, in fact, he was actually came from a really well-to-do family. He used to stay with his wider family, with his grandparents, his auntie and uncles, his cousins, in a really big place. Um, but the reason why his child was really tough uh, was because when he was young, his, his dad passed away. Um, his mom suffered stroke and, um, and had the mental capacity of a young child. And to add things off, um, his, his wife, um, he was adopted um, by his parents and his, his wider family knew that as well. So throughout his childhood, he really struggled with this sense of belonging. Um, very often in his, when he was growing up, he often felt excluded by his extended family. And he always asked the question, am I part of the Lim family? Maybe a number of us might understand that struggle, um, the sense or the lack of sense of belonging, perhaps in a family or a certain group or a community. But I want to suggest there are higher stakes uh, when it comes to spiritual matters of the question, who is part of God's family? And it's higher stakes because this really causes real uncertainty in people. And so the question that we're really going to consider this lunchtime is who are the true people of God? Who is part of God's family? And whether you're a Christian or not, um, I wonder whether this question is of interest. How do you define the people of God? Uh, is it because of the certain laws that you keep, a pet Sabbath or various laws? Or is it the background or the ethnicity that you're from? So if you're Western, uh, you probably follow God. And if, say, you come from an Eastern country, uh, you don't. Or is it your spiritual experiences, uh, perhaps speaking in tongues or having miraculous experience? Does that define you? as the people of God. And this question, it really matters uh, because it determines whether God is for you or against you. And there may be others who try to exclude you, and this may be a real issue for your confidence. So the question is, who are the true people of God? At uh, this lunchtime, we are not really interested in how I or, or you define who the people of God are, uh, but we are interested in what the Bible says about this. Uh, so let's look at our passage today. But perhaps before we go into the passage, um, let me pull up a slide first to see. Uh, it's just to give us a real sense of the big context of Acts. And we've been looking at Acts since January. And just to give us a real, uh, just a, a sense of the shape of Acts, there are four major sections in Acts. And there's a key section marker in Acts. The word of God increased and multiplied. And we see that at the end of a section in our passage today in verse 24. And that happens two other times, chapter 6 or 7 and 19 verse 20, uh, breaking up Acts into four main chunks. And you see as the sections increase, so does the geography change as well. So you have Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so in our passage today, we come to the end of the second section in Acts. 
And the main dispute in the second section is, are Christians against Israel's God? And you see that that's the opening issue in the episode of Stephen. Some of you might have recalled Asia came to speak for us back then. And the question that was posed against the Christians was, are Christians against God's presence, that is the temple, and God's law, and that is the law? And the section in Acts, section 2, answers this question with a resounding no. Uh, Philip, we've seen, um, the answer is saying no, because God's presence was not limited to Jerusalem. God goes into Samaria and goes out to bring the eunuch in. We saw Saul there. After that, God, sorry, Jesus' enemy being enlisted. And then we saw Peter a couple of weeks ago saying, no, uh, Christians are not against God's laws because God's laws were changed for the Gentiles to be made acceptable. And so the question that really leaves us uh, with this Um, in this final section is, so then who is the true Israel? Um, If Christians are not against Israel's God, who is the true Israel? Who are the true people of God? And as we've been saying over the past few weeks, uh, the purpose of Acts is certainty. And this is an important topic for certainty. Imagine Theophilus, the original reader of Acts, uh, could he be absolutely sure if he was part of the people of God? Was it Israel or was it the people who followed Jesus? So who are the people of God and whose side is God on? So let's dive right into our passage today. Um, Our passage today, um, the first half wasn't read at first. Uh, Let me uh, pull up the passage in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, uh, the second half of chapter 11, it's all about defining who Christians are. And you can see it's all about defining who Christians are because at the end of verse 6, 26, you see the disciples there first called Christians. So let me read from verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists At the Hellens, there are Greek-speaking Gentiles preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And it's interesting there that Luke uh, only labels these people as Christians here in chapter 11. Why not in chapter 1? I'm only here in chapter 11. And I think what Luke is doing for us, he's providing us a working definition of who Christians are. And you get a sense of that in verse 19. And there are those who were persecuted. And there were those who include, included the Jews. 
So when the gospel first broke forth, it was the Jews who first responded to the gospel. But not just the Jews, also the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Gentiles, the Jews and Gentiles, and those who were faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You see that in verse 23, Barnabas exalting them to remain faithful. And not only were they faithful to the Lord Jesus, they were also those who sat under the apostles' teachings. Barnabas took Saul and taught them for a year. So who are Christians? I think Luke provides us a working definition here. It is Jews and Gentiles faithful to the Lord Jesus. So it's not fixed on your ethnicity, your location, your circumstances, whether you're persecuted or not. It's those who are faithful to Jesus, faithful to the apostles' teachings. That is who Christians are. But see, the big question that we are dealing with this lunchtime is not who Christians are, but who the true people of God are. And we might think that question or the answer is obvious, but not just yet in Acts. Because the main contender to, uh, to claiming the rights to become the people of God is the nation of Israel. I mean, for Theophilus, it was clear. It was the nation of Israel or those who were followers of Jesus. And perhaps when Alistair was reading the passage, uh, you might have noticed that something strange was going on um, in, in chapter 12. So let me point you to verse 28. Uh, you can see there a famine was predicted um, to happen. And so the church in Antioch, they sent help and aid by the hand of Barnabas and Saul in chapter 11, verse 28. And glance down to chapter 12, verse 25. You see Barnabas and Saul returning from Jerusalem when they completed their service. And right in the middle of uh, this going and coming back, uh, we see the episode that Alistair was reading first. We see King Herod in Jerusalem and his death. The historical records tell us that the famine happened in Jerusalem in AD 47. And let me ask, uh, do you think Herod died during or after, or before the famine? Uh, because everyone's on mute, I'm going to guess it's either during or after the famine. But the really curious thing that's happening at passage is Herod died in AD 44. Uh, the historical records show us that he died before the famine, three years before. And you can tell that Luke is using another time frame. Uh, look at chapter 12, verse 20. Because back then, uh, the country of Tyre and Sidon was depending on Jerusalem for food. Uh, so that couldn't be during the time of the famine. So the question is why? Uh, why is Luke using something of a different time frame uh, to end off this section in Acts? Uh, it could be Dr. Luke. Um, he mixed up his papyrus and he got his episodes mixed up. Uh, but I want to suggest no. I mean, Luke is a careful writer and he puts this section intentionally here. And so what is chapter 12 doing? I mean, it's not immediately obvious what's happening here, uh, but let me run through the story to see what's going on. Uh, we see in chapter 12, verse 1 to 5, uh, we see James being killed and Peter being put in prison. From verse 6 to verse um, 19, we see a miraculous escape happening 
Uh, clearly, it's a miraculous escape because Peter himself had no clue what was happening. Now look at verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of his own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue, rescue me from the hand of Herod, from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now you see, Peter had no clue that he was being rescued. Um, he had no clue what was happening. But not only Peter, uh, Peter's friends as well had no clue. I look at verse 13. And when he had knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhonda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Uh, you see, Peter's friends who were praying for him, they, they had no clue uh, what was happening. Not only Peter, not only his friends, but also Herod. Verse 19, And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And the fact that all the players in the story here had no clue what was happening uh, just goes to show that this was a miraculous escape. So what does this whole narrative mean? Um, how can we draw some applications from it? I was reading commentary a couple of days ago in preparation for this talk, and one of them suggested that we should have more faith in our prayers, and Peter's friends are bad examples for us to follow. And while that's a true, uh, it's a truism, I mean, it's, it's right that we should have more faith when we pray to God. Um, as I suggested, the reason why the people had no clue here is to highlight, highlight how miraculous the escape was. And I don't think this passage here is a lesson on prayer. Well, certainly this passage is highlighting Jesus' kingship. Uh, you see Herod there being labeled as king. Chapter 12, verse 1, Herod the king. Uh, and he's also up against another king, uh, the Lord Jesus. Verse 11. Peter is sure that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue, rescue him. Verse 23, the angel of the Lord struck King Herod down. And clearly this passage is helping us to see that the power of the risen Lord continues his work in the face of opposition. But I want to suggest there's more uh, going on in this passage. When Alistair was reading out the passage, I'm not sure if any of you had spotted out a couple of, or maybe more than a couple, of allusions to the Exodus. And perhaps to give you guys a bit of break uh, for my voice, I'm going to split you guys back into groups and have a go at glancing through chapter 12 and try to spot uh, the most, any number of Exodus allusions as possible. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're not familiar with the Exodus, um, use your other group members to uh, look through the passage. So take a couple minutes. And we'll come back after this.
Hitton, how many do you guys spot? Um, we didn't count them, but there's there's a handful. Um, I would say four or five. Okay. Yeah, Alistair, I think I think we we had a handful. There's some easy ones though it's within all, that. All over the place, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably even some which aren't even there, really. <laughs> <laughs> Forty. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's give it a bit more time for the rest to come back in. Okay, guys, welcome back. Um, yeah, I wonder how many you guys managed to spot. Um, I, I kind of at nine or twelve, depending on how you count. Uh, so clearly in chap uh, in verse three, uh, you see during the days of unleavened bread, uh, that's a clear reference to a feast in the Exodus. Verse four, another very clear um, allusion to the Exodus as well as the Passover. Maybe the next one is slightly tenuous. Um, it's verse 6, it happened in the night. And likewise, the Exodus Passover also happened in the night. Verse 7, another clear reference, the angel of the Lord and struck Peter. Uh, those language comes right out the Exodus. And the instructions to Peter, I'm not sure any of you guys spot, spotted that, uh, to dress yourself, put on your sandals, uh, to move quickly, to wrap your cloak on. Those were the same instructions that God gave to the people of Israel. Um, during the days of the Exodus. Uh, you see in verse 11 as well, rescued from the hand of Herod. And the language of rescuing from the hand is also a very strong Exodus reference. And verse 23, uh, the angel of the Lord struck Herod down. And clearly there are a lot of Exodus references in this chapter. And the question is why? I mean, why are all those allusions there? And the reason being is because the Exodus for Israel is the defining moment for Israel to establish it as a nation. Um, it is the backbone of Israel. It is the moment where Israel received the covenant and the law is the moment where Israel became a nation. Uh, I served a couple of years in the army and I had to go through an initiation ceremony uh, to become an officer of the Singapore Armed Forces. I got turned out of my bed about 3 a.m. in the morning, I was shouted abuse by the instructors. I was made to march um, a long distance to the parade square. We made to jump off quite a high tower into the water for a confidence jump. And after that, uh, you receive a badge and you are defined as an officer of the Singapore Armed Forces. And Exodus is a very similar thing. It's the initiation ceremony, the, the defining feature of the people of God. And the exodus that happened in the Old Testament defined Israel as the people of God. But this exodus in chapter 12 is redefining the people of God. Not nation Israel, not the circumcision party, not the Jewish authorities, but Christians, but Jews and Gentiles faithful to Jesus are the people of God. So who are the true people of God? Uh, it's Christians. Uh, Christians are the true people of God. And there's a real shock in this passage because it's not the Jews, uh, because they rejected the Messiah, the one whom the Exodus 
pointed to. Think about how great a comfort this would be for Theophilus. Um, he's a gentle, uh, he trusts in Jesus, and he can be sure and certain that he is part of the people of God. I mean, perhaps this is not a new message for many of us, but it's certainly a good reminder. Uh, whenever we might feel excluded, or we might feel that we don't belong, we can be sure that it is not based on ethnicity or experience or denomination, not based on heritage, whether you're Jewish or you're British or whatever race you're from. And if you follow the King, if you follow King Jesus, if you follow the apostles' teachings, you are the people of God. And that also means that there's no two-track a path to become the people of God. There's a school of thought that says that there's a different track for the nation of Israel. Some trust in Jesus and some are just part of nation Israel. And perhaps the technical term for that is dispensation, uh, dispens dispensational theology. And some of them do say that there's a different path for the nation of Israel. But this passage shows that it clearly cannot be the case. Um, only Christians, those who put their trust in the Messiah, are the people of God. And likewise, this is the same for other religions out there. I mean, God has indicated his choice through the death and resurrection of his son. And anyone who rejects, not only the Jews, are not part of the people of God. And I want to suggest that this uh, gives us great certainty as we end our series in Acts, um, that we've been looking since January of how the gospel has broken forth into the nations. And 2,000 years ago, uh, something happened that changed the course of history. Uh, a man died and he rose again and his followers spread around the world with a message. A message that Jesus is the risen Lord. And so anyone who trusts in the message, uh, you are God's people. You are sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. Uh, you are part of his family and you belong. It is not based on your ethnicity, your background, the laws that you keep, the spiritual experiences you have. Um, you are God's people if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus. So as we finish our series, uh, God is reminding us today, if you trust in his risen son, uh, you can be absolutely sure that you are part of his chosen people. Let me pray. Father, we praise you so much for this truth. We praise you that we can have real certainty that if we put our trust in Jesus, we are part of the new exodus, part of your people. We pray, Father, against occasions where we might feel that we don't belong, reasons where we might feel that we are not part of your people. And we pray, Father, that you might give us real certainty that you are for us and we can be absolutely sure that we are part of your family. So we give you praise for this truth and we give you praise for the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.